Did you know that the hummingbird's life is so fragile that it is always only a few short hours from death? No, really. Its metabolism is so high that if it stops feeding, it will die within a matter of hours. It has to go into hibernation to sleep. That'll preach. Did you know your anxiety could kill you if you stop to worry about it for too long? Anxiety does kill people. Yes, our little bird friends have a lot to teach us about the great world of worry. But this morning, our Master, our Savior, our Shepherd has a lot more to teach us about anxiety than even what this little hummingbird could tell. So, this is what I want you to do this morning. I want you to just, for a moment, put aside that anxiety. Put aside that fear. Put down that unpaid bill. Put down that phone. Put down that maybe second guessing you're doing about this future decision you are making. Put down that to-do list, that organizational chart that you have constructed. Put down that cup of coffee or that energy drink. It's not going to help you anyway. Put down that thought of that son or that daughter or that relative who is walking away from the faith or has nothing to do with the faith whatsoever. Put down that anxiety over what job you're going to do. Put down that COVID-19 survival guide that you've been hiding in your pocket. Put down that bad election results contingency plan. Put it all aside. Put it all aside this morning for one moment and listen to your Lord say, look up, look down and look forward. And don't just look around at your world. Look at your world and think about who your Heavenly Father is this morning. He's going to tell you this. Stop worrying. And start birdwatching. Stop worrying. And go flower picking. Lots of happy things like that. Let's uh, set our minds correctly on what our Lord has to say by reading our passage before us today. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25. This is the word of our Lord to anxious disciples this morning. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider 
the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Jesus, as we hear Your Word, we need Your help. We need Your help to expose in us any undue anxieties that we may have for this life. Reveal to us the glory of Your care. And convict us about how we need to be more after the things that you are after in this world with our little lives. Amen. The first thing Jesus has to teach to anxious disciples is this. Stop worrying. Go bird watching. That's right. Today, when you go home, I want you to go watch the birds. Watch them. You may notice there in verse 25 that this isn't technically the first thing Jesus has to say to us. He starts with an unanswered question. He asks the question, is not your life more than this? And now, of course, we'll get back to that to answer that later, but this is also forming a, a bridge, a transition in his sermon here. He is, he's been talking about something that he's transitioning out of right here. So it's important for us to just do a brief, quick overview on the, the Sermon on the Mount, where he's been, where he's going, so that we understand what he's saying right here. The Sermon on the Mount, for those of you that are familiar, is the first discourse in Matthew's Gospel. It's perhaps Jesus' most well-known sermon. It has these majestic peaks and, and this majestic climb about it. I describe the Sermon on the Mount as going mountain climbing. First, you have these foothills in the Beatitudes. The foothills are what foothills are for. They get you up to elevation so you don't die during the climb. That is Matthew 3 through 16 of chapter 5. And then we have the ascent in chapter 5, 17 through 48. The ascent. Here Jesus teaches his disciples in this sermon about discipleship, about how the disciple relates to the word of God. And then we have the top, the center of the sermon in chapter 6, 1 through 18. Here Jesus teaches his disciples how they relate to good works as Jesus' disciples. And then we have the trip back down in chapter 6, 19 through 7, 11. This is the descent. Jesus teaches his disciples how they relate to this world and all of the problems of this world and the anxieties of this world. And just, just for your interest... There is a peak of the peak of this mountain. And the peak is the Lord's prayer itself. This is the height of the disciples' life. If, if you are not praying, you will not be succeeding as, as a disciple the way you need to. Now, now, where are we? We're coming down the mountain. Um, Jesus is 
coming off of the extraordinary heights of telling his disciples that they can call God their Father. We are talking about living in the world in light of that relationship with God. Jesus is now addressing concerns of the world. Particularly, Jesus is talking about anxiety over money. Verse 19 tells this. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth or rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And there you see in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus here is transitioning out of this conversation about living in the world and having anxiety about the things of the world, particularly money. And I think what he's doing right here is he's anticipating a question in his disciples' minds. And he's anticipating a question in your minds. You're asking, well, if I don't care about these things, pray tell, who will care about these things like money? Somebody's got to be anxious about these things. So Jesus says here, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 25, anxious. And let me define anxiety here for you very quickly. A sinful anxiety is the undue concern with the things of this life, like clothing, food, so on. It's the undue concern for the things of this life without the due consideration of your heavenly Father in that problem. Sinful anxiety is the undue concern for the things of this life without the due consideration of your heavenly Father in the problem. Uh, The first thing Jesus wants to say to these disciples once again is, stop worrying, go bird watching. He says it there in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. And remember, Jesus is preaching outside, so he probably is literally saying, look up there at the birds of the air. Now, from my reading, I have learned that Israel is a place full of birds. Israel forms the land bridge in between Asia and Europe and Africa, and birds are going through Israel all the time. Um, There are more species of birds who live in Israel, um, about 350 species of birds, than there are in the entire island of Ireland, which is about five times the size. That puts it into perspective. There's a lot of birds in Israel. Also, uh, notice that these birds that Jesus is pointing towards are not the beautiful peacocks of Solomon's palace. These are the birds of the air, right? These are wild birds. These are numerous birds. These are meddlesome birds. These are insignificant birds. To put it in perspective, hey, if you were a poor guy in the Old Testament and you couldn't afford to bring a ram or a goat or a sheep, you brought a bird because birds were insignificant. Birds of the air, the wild birds, the poor man's sacrifice. What does Jesus want us to learn from these birds? Well, look at their insignificant labor, he tells us. First off, the first thing he wants us to learn is, look at that, birds aren't farmers. Birds don't plant, birds don't sow, they don't reap, they don't put things in little barns and things like that. And you need to know that the the Hebrew calendar is arrayed in such a way that, that farmers in Israel are constantly busy. They're constantly sowing, constantly reaping because they're getting ready for the next harvest season because the harvest is just year-round in Israel. They're continually, furiously farming. And the birds don't do this. Now, careful here. 
Because if you look in the book of Proverbs, you will find that if you don't sow, that if you don't reap, that if you don't gather into barns, you are a fool. Right? Proverbs 12:11 says this, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 21:25 says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. But birds don't do this. Birds don't labor, they don't gather into barns, and Jesus wants us to see this. They labor furiously for the food of that day every single day, and then they repeat the cycle. As a matter of fact, some birds wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning, and they labor for 19 hours a day every single day, just feeding and feeding. Birds don't gather into barns either. Some birds do, of course. You could think of the wood pecker, the nuthatch, the jays, the crows, all those birds. But Jesus isn't talking about these birds. He's talking about feeder birds like doves, finches, sparrows, blackbirds. These are the kind of birds that live day to day. Why, why don't they farm? Well, for one, they don't have enough time. They're too busy eating, literally. Birds eat a lot. Uh, the average bird eats about, listen to this, a quarter to a half of its body weight a day. Wow. That would pack it on. Uh, There are exceptions, of course, to this. The hummingbird, like I talked about earlier, eats 100% of its body weight a day because it's going to die if it doesn't. Robins, American robins, they eat about 14 feet of earthworms in a single day. How do they pack it all in? Their babies have big mouths as well. A hummingbird, on top of its 100% body weight diet, needs to feed its young with about 60 insects a day. Generally speaking, baby birds need to eat every 10 to 20 minutes for about 12 to 14 hours a day. They don't have time for farming. They're too busy eating. That's kind of a goofy explanation. Maybe a more serious one is that God made them that way. God designed them to need his provision in his ordaining way every single day. God made the birds to live day by day. And notice what Jesus says about these birds. Your heavenly Father feeds them. God has ordained this. God, you could say, has given them this little call in their life. Hey, I want you to go work 19 hours a day, eat and eat and eat, and then die. That is their calling. And God has ordained it to be that way. And he sustains this work. Matter of fact, like I was reading in Psalm 147 earlier during the pastoral prayer, God seems to take particular delight in providing for the weakest members of his creation, like the beasts, like the ravens, as we saw there in in Psalm 147. He gives the beasts their food and to the young ravens who cry. And then it talks about his delight not being in strength, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Why does God take particular delight in providing for these weak members of his creation? Because he wants to show his chief creation, man, how much your strength is truly derived on him. That's what God wants you to see in the birds. Wow. I need God. Birds don't farm. But another thing Jesus wants to teach you about birds that you need to observe from bird watching is you are more important than a bird. You are more important to God than any bird. Verse 26 says this. 
Are you not more valuable than them? And the you there has special emphasis. You could translate it like this in my own poetic way. Are you, yes, you, the, the one higher on God's uh, life importance chart. Are you not more valuable than birds? If God takes care of the birds, how much more will he provide, will he feed you? Yeah, but there's another bigger lesson here, perhaps that Jesus also wants you to pull out from these birds. Like these birds, nothing you do in life really gives you any control. That's what God wants you to see in these birds. Wow, nothing I do in life gives me any real control over this life that I have. That's a strange solution to worry, right? Hey, you want to deal with your worry problem? Hey, you're not scared enough. That's what Jesus tells you. You don't have any control. Maybe that is your problem. But we have no control. And these birds also have no control. They have no assurance where their next meal is going to come from, where their life is going to come from. They have no assurance that that nest that they just spent two weeks building isn't going to just be destroyed by a, a movement of nature or something else. These birds have no assurance, and they go happily on their way day after day. And Jesus kind of packs on the, the punch here. Verse 27, he says, Which of you, by being anxious about your life, can add a single span uh, or hour to the span of life? The hour there is the word for cubit, which is uh, from the finger to the elbow, so to speak. This is kind of the Hebrew way of saying, Hey, which of you, by being scared about your life, can make yourself your life one inch longer? Right? It's, it's talking about your life in length terms like that. So even if you, even if you are the most cautious, right, with your health, even if you are the most Scrooge-like with your finances, even if you are the most disciplined with your study and your education, even if you are the most by the book, and I do mean by the book with your parenting, you have nothing that's guaranteed in this life. Just like those birds. Maybe, perhaps, God has ordained the birds' lives to be the way the birds' life is to make you less proud, to humble you. And here's a few more applications you can pull from the birds. The birds provide encouragement to us by rebuke. What's one rebuke? They rebuke our wretched worry. The birds should rebuke our wretched wordy. Notice later while you're watching those birds how happy and how carefree they are. They're just there in your backyard. No security. Even though they don't have your barns, even though they don't have your closets, even though they don't have your garages, even though they don't have your 401ks, they seem to be happier than you. They rebuke your wretched worry. They also rebuke our slothful ease. They rebuke it. Birds are happy because, so to speak, they know their place in God's creation. They still labor and work daily. But that's because that's how God feeds them. They labor earnestly because that's how God has created them to be. Uh, this is my one Martin Luther quote for the morning. There you go. I did it. Ready? Here it comes. Martin Luther says this, God provides for the birds, but he does not drop it into their mouths. 
They rebuke our slothful ease. Matter of fact, if we could put words in the mouth of a bird, it would be like this. Hey, if I perish, I perish. I must do what God has given me to do in this life and let him take care of the things I can't control. That's for God to worry about. That's what only God can control. Don't don't misunderstand the bird illustration. This is not a call to laziness. This is a call to labor and work with diligence, knowing God is going to provide through this labor. Now, the the second instruction that Jesus gives to his oh-so-anxious disciples is this. Stop worrying. Go flower-picking. That's right. I want you, after the evening or the day, the morning service, to go out to a beautiful garden and smell some flowers. This is what Jesus tells us to do in verse 28. Consider the lilies of the field, he says. By the way, it's impossible to determine what kind of flower he is referring to. There are just too many that often fall under this title. Uh, But nonetheless, Israel is a land filled with flowers. In Jesus' day, a lily could refer to many different kinds of flowers, uh, a ranunculus, uh, anemone, uh, cyclamen, a tulip, a uh, hyacinth, uh, a narcissus, a uh, crocus, uh, an iris, or an orchid. That's the last time I'm going to read that list, so I hope you wrote that down. <laughs> Could refer to any of those things. And notice these are, once again, flowers of the field. These are those wildflowers. These aren't those little flowers that you bring into your garden and you nurse and you cherish and you put fertilizer on and all these kinds of things. No, these are the wildflowers that you can't get rid of no matter how hard you try. They just appear overnight. What do we see here? Jesus wants us to look how these flowers grow. Verse 28. Consider them. How they grow. If birds are noticeable for their insignificant labor, I would describe flowers as noticeable for their insignificant splendor. Insignificant splendor. And and here's a few lessons that Jesus wants us to learn about these flowers. They are passive. They can do nothing. They do not toil. They do not spin. This is the, the language of clothing makers. Like birds, flowers really have no control. They are dependent on outside circumstances. But unlike birds, they are completely out of control. They have no no control over their circumstances. Yes, birds can work furiously, and they are a picture of faith in that way, but flowers, all they can do is is grow silently as a picture of faith. Like the birds, though, they are content with God's purpose for them in their life. They might not be seen by anyone. Think about that. One flower could go its whole entire life without being enjoyed by any human eye. And yet God has ordained for it to grow. Why? So that it will please him. And they are content in their glow, so to speak. Another lesson that you could learn from flowers, hey, you, you, even on your best day, even on today perhaps, your best dressed day of your life, you cannot beat a flower. That's what Jesus tells you. I didn't tell you that, by the way. Jesus, he says this, verse 29, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In Jesus' day, lilies 
were the picture of beauty. The temple, the temple was decorated with these six foot large lilies everywhere. They showed the glory of God's creation. They reminded us of the beauty and the purity of Eden. And they they point our minds and our hearts to the future hope of Christ's kingdom. The flowers, the lilies, they are, as Psalm 96, 9 talks about, maybe the splendor of God's holiness. This is what the lilies show us. They are beautiful. They are more, more beautiful than Solomon. They have more splendor than even Solomon had. Even Solomon, one of the richest, best-dressed men in history, could not stand against the beauty of these. Now, careful here. Careful here with your little happy applicational hands. Jesus is not saying that you will be dressed better than Solomon, right? He's saying, rather, look at how your heavenly Father provides insignificant and passing splendor to his creation. And stop worrying. That's what Jesus is saying here. Basically, God is a God who provides lavishly for all his creation. Even though much of creation, as we see today, is disposable and passing, God doesn't just let it go by in black and white. He gives it to us in vibrant color and glorious splendor. Insignificant, but glorious. This illustration, by the way, extends throughout all of God's creation. When was the last time you saw a sunset in the evening or a sunrise in the morning and you're like, I could have done better? God is incredible in the amount of beauty he puts in creation. But there's another lesson that Jesus really wants you to hear from the flowers. You are more significant than they. You are more significant than plants. Verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Notice here, Jesus changes the illustration. He's no longer talking about those beautiful flowers that I spent so long developing. He's now talking about grass. Grass is of great value to you. It's of great value to me. I just spent a whole entire day preparing my yard for winter grass, and it looks beautiful. I love grass. I want it green, more green, more fertilizer on there. Give me some grass. It's great to us to think about grass, but to an Israelite, not so much. Grass was the thing you were trying to find something to throw it in. Grass was something you were trying to get rid of. Grass, for all I know, had only one purpose, and that was to fire bread ovens and heat them up. Grass was not really that good. Grass was a pain. But even grass, even grass, God provides for. Jesus is saying here, take any plant, even the most common plant like grass, even grass is sufficiently clothed by God. It's clothed even though its life is short and its purpose is slim. That is what the lesson grass has to teach us. You, 
You are by far more valuable than any plant in your Father's kingdom purposes. If He gives such fine garments to flowers, if He even provides for grass, why are you worried about your daily covering for this life? That is what Jesus has to tell you. In the end, but in the end, both the birds and the begonias have a similar message to teach us, though. And this is the most significant one. It's, a, it's an argument that Jesus is making. Jesus is making an argument from lesser to greater. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, if God takes care of the birds and the plants, how much more will he take care of you? I like lesser to greater arguments. For most of my life, the greatest thing I ever could imagine when I saw a sign with gold on it was thinking about that glorious Big Mac burger. Those glorious arches symbolized to me happiness. Happiness was on its way into my stomach. But now, I mean, if you like McDonald's, Big Macs, you're going to love something called In-N-Out, right? From lesser to greater. If you like Lake Buena Vista, if you like going there in your boat and scooting around, I've got some lakes in Minnesota I really want to show you. You're going to love these lakes. They actually don't have dead bodies in them. If you, if you like the way your medical doctor takes care of you as a patient, you're going to love how your medical doctor takes care of you if that medical doctor is your father or your mother, right? It's an argument from lesser to greater. If you think this is cool, wait till you see this. Look at your Bibles. You are more valuable, verse 26 says to us. Verse 30, how much more will he clothe you, it says. If you are amazed today by God's design and how he has provided for creation, know today, know today that God as a heavenly father is closer, more concerned, more invested in you than he is in any bird or flower. By the way, who is you? Be careful here. The you Jesus is talking about here is the disciple, right? What we would call today the Christian. Jesus isn't talking about everyone out there. Only those who can call on God as Heavenly Father. Only those who have access to the God who knows and who cares, right? You, you are those who have been chosen by the Father. You have been purchased by the Son. You have been sealed and you have been born again by the Spirit, that is the one that God cares so much more about. He has also given you, of all people, His royal mission here on earth. God cares more about you than He does about flowers. And that is an encouragement. Jesus is making extraordinary statements here, but let's not be confused about what Jesus is saying. What are the promises that Jesus is giving us? He is not saying, hey, you're going to feast here on earth, but he is saying you will have enough here on earth, right? 
Jesus is not saying, hey, you're going to be parading around through this life in garments of gold. No. But he's saying, your garments will be sufficient for you. Jesus is not saying here, hey, you're going to have everything you want in life. No, Jesus is saying, you can rejoice and have satisfaction in any life your heavenly Father gives you because He is with you. This is perspective making, right? This this is life altering. But this, so far, is not Jesus' final solution, anecdote, to your anxiety problem. He hasn't even told you the good part yet. So, it's not just enough to go bird watching or go flower picking. You need an additional prescription to help you get well. Stop worrying, yes, by going bird watching. Stop worrying, yes, by going flower gazing. But you need to be doing something if you want to handle your anxiety the way Jesus wants you to. Stop worrying, Jesus says. Go great commission seeking. That's what Jesus says. This is the great the great solution to your anxiety. Seek His kingdom. Verse 31. Therefore, it's making a conclusion, obviously, of what we've said. You are more valuable to God than birds and plants. You can be sure that He'll provide for your needs, right? Let me repeat that definition I gave you earlier about anxiety. Anxiety is the undue preoccupation about the cares and concerns of this life without due consideration of your Heavenly Father in the process. Now, I, I want to intentionally repeat that because I want to emphasize a few lines to you. Notice, it's the undue preoccupation with something. It doesn't take due consideration of your Heavenly Father. Anxiety is sinful when it is disproportionate. Anxiety is sinful when it is unwarranted. Anxiety is sinful when it is excessive. But I don't want you to misconstrue me as actually saying that all anxiety is sinful. I am not also saying that a true believer can't struggle with anxiety. I am not saying that you should be lazy, as the birds have illustrated. I'm not even saying that anxiousness shouldn't be a part of your life. Not all, to be totally honest with you today, not all anxiety is bad. For example, I am profoundly grateful for my anxiety over gravity. You are too. Let me ask you a few questions. When does a thief stop being a thief? According to Ephesians 4, when he learns to work so that he can share, right? When does a liar stop being a liar? According to Ephesians 4, when he starts telling the truth. When does an evil tongue stop tearing people down? When it starts building people up. When does an anxious person stop being an anxious person? When they start becoming duly anxious. When they are anxious about the right things. Perhaps you were wondering how verse 25 had anything to do with anything. 
wonder no more. Right? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Jesus' answer now he gives to us is, yes, there is more to this life than eating and getting dressed in the morning, and this is the solution to anxiety. So let's just, for the rest of our time, break down two different kinds of anxiety. Let's talk about a sinful kind of anxiety, and let's talk about a godly, Christ-honoring, solution forming form of uh, anxiety. First off, the sinful, worldly kind of anxiety. Verse 31, let me read it for you again. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. This is the sinful kind of worry. This is the worldly kind of anxiety. This is what the Gentiles do. And just so you know, this sermon is given to Jewish disciples. And so when, when they heard Jesus talking about Gentiles, uh, they would be thinking about all of those people outside of the Jewish community. To put it in a very Pauline way, these are the ones who, according to Romans 9, didn't have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. They didn't have the promise of the Messiah. They were the uncircumcision, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 11, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who the Gentiles are. They are outside of the community of faith. They are outside of Israel. They have no connection to the only true God. They didn't have God. They didn't know God. They lived in ignorance. They lived in this spiritual darkness. Instead of the God of promise, the God of hope, the Gentiles had their own gods. The most capricious of gods you could find too. These gods who you had to offer endless prayers to, offer endless sacrifices of highly expensive natures like your own firstborn son to, in the hope that maybe, maybe he will hear, maybe he will pay attention, maybe he will wake up and come to my aid. This was the only God the Gentiles had, and because of it, they lived anxious lives. According to Jesus here, they are constantly, verse 32, seeking after these things, right? They're, they're, they're constantly showing this strong interest, this strong desire, this profound need to get after these things. They're constantly asking this question, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? That's because this life is all they had. And they're terrified that they won't get all they want out of this life. That's what gives them their anxiety. Paul says in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. All they have to enjoy is this life, so they want to get everything they can out of this life. Surely they think, Surely, if I just had a little more money, 
I would be happy. Surely, they think, if I could just get out of this toxic marriage and be free, then I'd be happy. Surely, they think, if I, if I get that next promotion and make just a little bit more, then I'll be content. Surely, they think, if I could just pad my portfolio with a little bit more diversity, then I'll be content. Surely, they think, if I could just find a little more me time in this life, then I'd be satisfied. Surely, they think, if I just had that new toy, then I would want nothing more. Surely, they think, if I could just get a cure for COVID, then this world could go back to the happy, wonderful world that it was. Surely they think if we could just get one more justice on the bench, if we could just get one more president in the White House, then life would be good and our country would be saved. Surely they think if we could just rid the world of hunger and of suffering, then we would be happy. The Gentiles seek after these things. Now, not all those desires are bad, but with those who do not know God, there is no hope in all of those desires. And they go on seeking those things. But as Solomon would tell you in the book of Ecclesiastes, you know what? There is a lot of pleasure in this world. There is a whole lot of pleasure in this world, but there's not a lot of happiness. You notice that? There is no happiness. Despite all of our pleasure that we are packing into our lives, we cannot find happiness. We cannot find anything that really lasts. What are the Gentiles missing? They are missing the God who knows. Verse 32, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Remember, this sermon is coming down from the mountain we, we, we just had that mountaintop experience of knowing that we have a relationship to God unlike one that we've ever experienced before. We get to call on God as a father, a thing that a Jew never did. And now we're coming down from that mountaintop experience and Jesus is saying amazing things about the God who is with us in this life. We don't pray to a God who we have to fight to get our attention, who we have to remind of our every need. We don't serve a God God who basically leaves us to ourselves and our ignorance and lets us sort out our lives for us. No, we pray, listen to this, we pray to a perfect heavenly Father. We pray to a Father like chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 tells us. A Father who knows what you need before you even ask him. He always has this perfect knowledge of your need. You're never surprising him with anything. Verse, chapter 7, verse 11 says something else about this father. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He's even better than the best example of a father you can find. He doesn't spoil you into a state of uselessness. He knows everything you need before you ask him. And he is not holding out on us as though we haven't impressed him enough. No, 
We, we don't get the sense that he's waiting for us at all. We get the sense that he, he, he knows what we want. He wants to give us what we need, and he's waiting for us to ask for them so that he can give us, so that he can show us how much we need him. He is omnipotent. He is the one who has all power, but at the same time, he is omniscient. He is the one who does all good with his power. There is not a prayer he does not answer. There is not a need he doesn't supply. There is not a grace for any situation. We don't need to have this sinful type of worry this worldly kind of anxiety we can live like flowers we can live like birds knowing that our heavenly father will provide for us and provide suitably for us our god takes delight in us as dependent creatures and he takes delight in showing us our need for him but even this, a knowing God isn't the complete, the complete solution to our anxiety. We also need a right kind of anxiety, a right kind of concern. God is a good heavenly father, but he is also a purposeful heavenly father. He is after something more. And he is excited to lavishly provide on his children everything they need to live this life of more that he is after. So there's the sinful worldly kind, but let's talk about the right godly kind of anxiety. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The same word, seek, that was used to talk about the Gentiles is now used to talk about the disciples. Yes, not all seeking, not all worry, not all anxiety is necessarily sinful. And notice what he says about this. Seek first the kingdom. This is not a first in a sequence. It's not like, hey, if I get up in the morning and read my Bible and pray, God's going to bless my life. No, it's, it's first in priority. This is, needs to be your top anxiety. This needs to be the thing that marks your whole day. This is the utmost interest that you have. This is the kind of life that the Father abundantly provides for, the life that is lived very much for another kingdom and not the kingdom here on earth. This is the kind of life that God gives towards Notice the the two priorities of the disciples here. First off, you are seeking his kingdom or the kingdom of God. This is the rule and reign of Jesus here on earth over the nation of Israel and the entire world thereby. By the way, this has not happened yet. This is what the disciples are longing for and praying for. We see there in 6, verse 10 says this in the disciples' prayer, Your kingdom come, O Lord. Your will be done, O Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. How does the disciple live who prays this way, who says, Lord, let your kingdom come? They're busy like birds doing the work that God has for them in this life. They say to themselves, God has chosen for himself and his glory a people to fill his kingdom, and I want to be earnest and diligent in seeking them. We also seek his righteousness. 
This is not the type of righteousness that gets you into the kingdom. This is the kind of righteousness, the righteous life, that is the fruit of Christ's righteousness covering you. Jesus has already kind of set up this as a definition for us in the Beatitudes. He talks about in in Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the inward quality of the true disciple. This is who they are. Those people who know they have nothing in themselves to offer to God. This is not somebody who's coming to God and saying, look at all this righteousness. This is someone who's coming to God and saying, I have a poverty of righteousness and I need your alien righteousness credited to me by faith. Philippians 3.9 says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And and having received this righteousness by faith, the Beatitudes go on to explain the inward qualities of the disciple. It explains them as someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It explains them as someone who gets in trouble for righteousness' sake here in this world. It explains them as people who have noticeable outward fruits of their inward reality. This is the disciple who has been justified by faith. This righteousness, I would say, is the good works that flow out of justification. This is the good works that come from the training school of Christ here on earth. This is the kind of righteousness or the the lives of obedience that we are called to live as disciples and we're supposed to seek in the Great Commission. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is seek the Great Commission, right? Uh, Matthew 28, 19, I'll, I'll read it for you. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Training, preaching the gospel, building up the church, Training disciples, this is the kind of righteousness we are to seek. We are to make this our highest priority, our greatest affection. And we have assurance from our Heavenly Father as we are on mission, as we are living to the max. Anything we determine to be of God's will and God's way and His, His purpose here on earth, we will have more than enough to provide for us. Your mission is more important than the birds. Your mission is more important than the flowers. Your mission is to seek the kingdom purposes of God here on this earth. Let me ask you just a few questions. Just a few final questions about this. Do you have the disciples' priorities in your life? Are these, are these the top of the list, what you're about? I'm about seeking the Great Commission. I'm about telling people about Jesus. I'm about making disciples who make other disciples. I'm about being here in the local church and making the local church the priority of my week and, and scheduling my entire life around it. Do you have these disciple priorities? Do you have the disciples' contentment? Regardless of what you have, are you content in the life God has given you, right? 
you say. God may not have given me the biggest house or the largest income, but he has given me all that I need to seek first his great commission and find my joy and my happiness in that. Do you have the disciples' contentment? But finally, do you have the disciples' confidence? Do you have the disciples' confidence? Can you say, I will survive on this earth for as long as Jesus wants me to, and I'm happy with that. I'm content in that. I find joy in that. For as long as my Savior has ordained for me to be here, I will serve Him and seek His purposes continually. You might not live like a king, but you are living like someone on the king's mission. Because that's what you are. What is the confidence that the disciple has? Well, they basically have the confidence and the encouragement that the life following Jesus is a whole lot better than any other life that they could live. I'm going to read you two cross-references and then I'll be done. Matthew 16, verse 25 says this, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You will find a better life, a greater life, a more satisfying life if you are following Jesus in this way. And lastly, as Matthew 28, 19 through 20 kind of already told us, the Great Commission comes with these two glorious assurances. The first assurance Jesus gives us is this. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So you understand what that means? If you are Jesus' disciple, nothing can happen to you apart from his say-so. And he concludes it by saying, Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Nothing, nothing, will happen to you apart from his presence and his observation. That is the confidence that the disciple has. That is what we could call the, the solution to the anxiety problem that we have. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things, they'll be added to you. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for the encouragement that we can find from the birds and the flowers and from the mission that you have given us to be thrilled with, to be invested in with all of our lives. We pray now that you would um, be honored in the rest of our day. Thank you for giving it to us. Amen.